it's summer. And you know what that means? It's time for a Plymouth gin and tonic. So grab yourself a glass and some ice. Start with a pourer of Plymouth gin, which is distilled using a blend of seven botanicals. Add in some tonic, then finish with a slice of orange. Now that is the perfect gin and tonic. Plymouth Gin, distilled with care and craft in England since 1793. What you're hearing is tape of a professional tennis player named Nicholas Kicker playing at a tournament in 2015. He's playing on a clay court, and in the video, there's just something off about it. Neither of the players are hustling toward the ball, and they keep making really easy mistakes. The game never hits a rhythm. Can you tell me about that match? I mean, I watched it and it's so lackluster. Like, it looks kind of like they both forgot <laughs> how to play tennis. Yeah, it's, it's, it's comical, yeah. I mean, I mean, when I spoke to Nicholas about this, I said, you know, how, what, how did you feel after the match? And I think he said to me, look how obvious it is. You don't have to watch the video. And, you know, you can see Nicholas throughout the whole match looking at the umpire because I think that he knows it's pretty obvious. The video isn't just comical, it's weird. Two top tennis players playing what looks like an amateur game. Serves are going straight into the net. Easy volleys are getting hit out of bounds. Nicholas is playing a rival named Giovanni Lepenti. Uh, but it was a situation where Lepenti could not have with respect to him being playing any worse. But Nicholas had to try and lose this match. So he took he had to take extreme measures that were that were, you know, very, very obvious. That's journalist William Ralston, who recently wrote a cover story about Nicholas for FT Weekend magazine. He spent a lot of time speaking with Nicholas about the experience. Immediately after the match he told me he was in his hotel room and he was, you know, he locked the door because he was worried the police were going to come and get him. He was he was panicking at this point. There was reason to panic. The match was suspicious, and in May of 2018, after three years of investigation, Nicholas was found guilty of match-fixing and suspended from professional tennis. And William says his story isn't a one-off. It's a crisis of corruption in a sport that many of us think of as very elite and very buttoned up. The crazy thing is, is that if you're 200 in the world at almost anything, uh, definitely most sports, uh, I think you're going to make a fairly you know, decent living, whereas with tennis players, they really struggle to make ends meet. It's partly because the prize money is paltry, for lack of a better word. If the players can make more money from selling a match than playing the match, there's always going to be a temptation to match fit. Today, we look at the dark underbelly of tennis, where underpaid athletes are selling games just to break even. Then we talk about vice signaling in politics with FT columnist Stephen Bush. Vice signaling is a trend that works like virtue signaling, but instead of taking an empty stand for something altruistic, it's about taking an empty stand for something hardlined and sometimes cruel. This is FT Weekend. I'm Lila Raptopoulos. Professional tennis has more suspicious betting than any other sport. In many ways, it's a perfect hotbed for cheating. It's terrible economically for players. It's extremely lucrative for online gamblers. And as you'll see, there's no easy solution. William, hi, welcome to the show. Hello, nice to meet you. It's a real pleasure to be on board and I'm happy to talk about the story. So as we record this, we are in the last days of Wimbledon. 
which is a very lush event, like the royal family goes and, you know, sun hats, white linen, people drinking pims. <laughs> but in your FT Magazine piece, it, it was very clear that that is not what the majority of tennis is like. And I'm curious if you can tell me a little bit about what tennis is like in the minor leagues or for sort of the vast majority of players. Yeah, it's, it's, it's one of those funny sports that there is this real contrast between what you see on the television and um, and at the lower levels. And when I say the lower levels, I mean anything below the top 100, 150. While the prize money keeps continues to go up at the top levels, I think the winners take home £2 million this year. You know, at the lower levels, uh, you've got, you know, thousands of players struggling to make a living. And it's also because expense is so high. These are, They're all self-employed and they have to cover rackets, stringing. Once you come back from any of these tournaments, you know, they're lucky to have broken even. Then that's if they win the tournament. I think that it's very important to stress that the actual standard of tennis at 200 in the world. If you're where Nicholas Kicker was when it, when he took the took the money, but, you know, he was, he was it went around 200. And if you put him next to Federer, Djokovic, the top players, you won't spot that many things that are different. I mean, they're hitting the ball exceptionally well. The backhand is smooth. The standard of tennis at 200 is exceptionally high, but there is a huge disparity in the pay. Mm-hmm. And that, that's what seems so strange to me. This is a problem that continues to plague tennis, but around nine years ago, the tennis association that runs the lower leagues tried to address this disparity by selling live match data to betting houses. They wanted to raise more money to give players as cash prizes, which is good, but doing so caused other issues. Because live data isn't just the ultimate score of a match, like this person won, this person lost. It's in-game, in-the-moment data straight from the umpire as it happens. It's numbers on every serve, every fault, every set, which means that there are tons of different outcomes to bet on. After a player loses a set, you can bet that they win the next one. You can even bet on the number of games they'll win within that set. That kind of data is a fixer's dream. And because the lower leagues of tennis aren't televised, and there's only one person per team, it's harder to police. So when the league started selling that data, corruption ran rampant. Within four years, the number of suspicious match alerts at the futures level increased from three to 240. The actual number of suspicious match alerts increased massively as soon as they start, start selling this data. It's the, it's the live in play betting that's the problem here. That's what it enables. The live in play betting, the serves, the, the double faults, the, um, you know, all, these, all these contingencies. That, that's the problem. And that's what this live data sale enables. Right. Interesting. So the Tennis Federation does it because it helps them make money, but it yeah. actually ends up hurting the players in some ways because... Well, yeah, it does. Not. It does sort of hurt the players, but it also allows them to offer some prize money. Right. But they're also not generating enough, they're not offering enough prize money to remove the temptation. Right. So For corruption. you either offer... Yeah, exactly. Yeah. There are two options. You either stop the data sale altogether, which is one possibility, which might remove the opportunity. Right. And that has many flaws. Or you offer more prize money and you remove the temptation for players to um, to sell a match. But at the moment, they fall in between this and that's where the problem lies. Yeah, wow. Okay, that's fascinating. So if you can't remove the temptation, can you remove the mechanism? And that's where this live data sale comes in. This kind of granularity is what made that game that Nicholas fixed so obvious. To make $15,000, he just needed to win the first set, then lose the following two. But to understand what made him do it, you need to know a little more about him. Nicholas's story is the perfect illustration of this problem. A talented player who was struggling to make ends meet. I remember that his dad told me when we were in Paris together that he was, that he was a warrior on the court where other players would win the, would win the point in one or two shots. Nicholas would use five. He was, he was a clay court warrior. 
But it was very clear that he had talent. And Nicholas would travel these tournaments, which are in the middle of nowhere. You know, they are they are pretty haunting places in the you know if you go to them. And he used to sit there and Bastian, his kid, used to be sleep, sleeping in a pram by the you know by the side of the court. In 2015, Nicholas was in debt. He was 22. He had a young child to support. Touring and coaching costs were so high that his father had remortgaged their family home three times and his mother had taken on extra work shifts to support him. He's traveling more frequently. Um, yeah, and he's having good results, but he's still you know, losing money. And I think that he, I think that there was obviously a frustration, a pressure on him to, to sort of pay his family back. But I think that there was also a, an anger and frustration because at this sport that essentially would not would not pay him enough. Around that time, a fixer contacted Nicholas on Facebook and offered him the deal. This deal was about double what he would have made by winning the tournament. And Nicholas was feeling desperate. The fixer said to him that because you had lost the Lepenti earlier on in the season, nobody would suspect that you would so- that you'd fix this match. I think the line he used to me was... Um, was that, you know, I, I felt like I had a, an angel and a devil on my back. You know, obviously, his moral compass is saying, I can't do this. But obviously, the other side of it is that, you know, I, I have I have a family to, to provide for. So Nicholas took the offer. That day, he played Lepenti, and he deliberately lost. And at the end, I think in the final game, I think he hits three, three returns into the net, and they're all carbon copies of each other. And I don't care what, how you're feeling in that day. A professional tennis player is not going to do that. But it was just, I think it was just sheer desperation. I think that, you know, you've, you've got this, this strange situation where Nicholas has to lose and yet he just cannot lose. I don't know. I, I, I don't want to speculate, but I think you have to wonder what would have happened to him because, you know, the, whoever was paying him was, you know, there's a lot of money on the line. In the months that followed, an investigation began against Nicholas. He continued to play throughout it. It's kind of a tragic story, really, because three years later, in 2018, when he was found guilty, he was finally breaking out of the lower leagues. Nicholas, at this point, was at the peak of his career. He'd gone to the Australian Open in January, and he'd got to the third round, which was a fantastic result. And then he arrived in, at, the, at the clay court Grand Slam of the year, the French Open. You know, essentially this this this, this rising talent, so to speak. You know, and everyone, everyone was excited about him. Um, and then when he was travelling from Lyon to, to, to Paris uh, for the French Open, he'd received a phone call from the the tennis integrity unit, was it was at the time, basically saying that you know well, you've been found guilty and said, listen, you're thrown out of the tournament, you can't play at all. Mm. So you know his life really did fall off a cliff at this point. Nicholas was given a six-year ban from tennis and a twenty-five thousand dollar fine. It really polarizes people whether, you know, is he an offender and he should be barred from the game full stop or should we should we treat him with empathy, uh, given that he's, you know, a victim of, of a, yes, a broken system, um, uh, people's desire to gamble. Wow. It's this, this uh, very funny thing. How do we treat criminals? Do we, should we give them a second chance? Because he's a criminal, he's an offender, but does he deserve a second chance? My, my feeling is that there, is, there has to be a degree of empathy there. Yeah, I felt very sympathetic to him. So did I, yeah. But it's the same it's the same with many crimes though. I mean, people don't tend to become a criminal in many cases. They sort of fall into it, you know, by by mechanisms, by circumstances. And that's what Nicholas is. I would never ever justify what he's done, but I think that once you've provided some context, uh, I think you probably see him through a very different lens. Since Nicholas was banned, sports betting has boomed in the US. So if the system hasn't changed, are there just gonna be more Nicholas kickers? 
You know, on the betting side, the Supreme Court overturned the federal ban on sports betting in the U.S. in 2018. And so the industry has been booming over here. Um, and I think it's expected to bring in $8 billion annually soon. Wow. I'm, I'm curious, um, William, I guess what the solution is, you know, like, will professional tennis ever be able to be sustainable for people who are under, you know, 100, top 100? No, it's, it's, it's definitely not pointing in the right direction. The, the big question I have in my mind, and I keep on going back and forth with it, is that live data sale. I mean, I don't think you can remove the temptation enough to eradicate match fixing. I think you can probably make it less of a temptation, but I don't think you can eradicate it. As I said, the, the independent review, after analysing it carefully, they recommended that they should remove the data sale and that the actual damage that it causes the player actually outweighs the actual benefits it gives in terms of income. When I put this to the ITF and also to the Sport Radar, they both came up with the same argument, which was essentially that if you don't do it officially, then essentially you'll have court sides, which is people who go to matches and, you know, mm-hmm. create the data themselves and sell it on. Yeah. One of the key ways that, that you actually catch players in match fixing is by betting alerts. Is you, you rely on the actual betting houses to actually alert you to, yeah. to, to, to strange movements in the odds. If you're not doing this officially, then you're not going to have those alerts, in which case all this match fixing might go underground. And that's one of the cases that the, that the Sport Radar and the ITF did make. So the strategy is actually to essentially allow this betting to go on, to, to allow the data sale, and then to use some of that income to essentially police it. Right. And the way being sort of to focus on the stick versus the carrot, right? Like to focus on the fines and the bans. Totally. That's exactly right. That's a good way of putting it. Yeah. It's a very risky strategy because you are essentially saying, acknowledging that this is always going to go on. Yeah. Nicholas was able to shorten his suspension to just three years. He returned to the sport in 2021. So William, where is Nicholas Kicker now? What's going on? Has his career kind of been ruined by this or is he still going? Nicholas is currently, uh, he, tr- he tried to qualify for Roland Garros when I visited him in the French Open. Um, he, he played really well. I mean, he was, a, he was playing against a player who was much higher ranked than him. Um, so yeah, he's, he's still flirting on the top 200. I mean, he's basically essentially where, where he was when he accepted the, you know, the, the, the money. Wow. Um, and the question is, can he get back to the top again? I mean, um, there's no doubt he's very talented. There's no doubt he's you know, uh, very driven, but it's not very easy to, to find your way back to the top after taking three years out of the game. William, thank you so much. This was really fascinating. Thank you very much for your time. Hi, folks. I'm here in Lyd in Kent, where I'm looking at a a new operation to try to stop illegal people trafficking. That is none other than Boris Johnson, the outgoing UK Prime Minister, speaking this past April, talking about the Conservative government's current resettlement policy. The policy is very controversial. Today, what we're saying is if you come here illegally across the channel, if you're one of these able-bodied young men under 40, which is overwhelmingly who they are, then uh, you will be relocated uh, from uh, Dover, from this country, to Rwanda. You heard that right. The resettlement plan is to deport refugees who land on UK shores to Rwanda. So far, it hasn't worked. If they are found not to have a legitimate reason to seek asylum, they will be sent back to their home country. And if they are found to have a legitimate reason to do that, they will be uh, told they have to stay in Rwanda. Now, the thing about this policy is that 
it doesn't work, right? It right. doesn't doesn't stop people making the journey. Uh, when the state of Israel tried to do this in the 90s, people just started making the journey again from Rwanda. But the mm-hmm. purpose of it is to, is to give Conservative MPs something to say when their constituents say, I am angry about these, these boat crossings. That's Stephen Bush. He's a political columnist at the Financial Times, and he's talking to me about Boris Johnson because this is a great example of something Stephen has been seeing a lot in politics these days. Vice signaling. You've probably heard the term virtue signaling. That's when someone makes a gesture or says something to seem virtuous, but then doesn't follow through on it. Vice signaling is the opposite. It's when people just say they'll implement an aggressive policy to look tough and to appeal to voters, even if they have no plans to do it. I would say it's an example of of, of saying something outrageous to indicate to a group of voters that you are on their side. Stephen recently wrote a magazine cover story about this for the FT. It's in the show notes. And I had questions, so I invited him on to talk through it. I should also say that this conversation was recorded as Boris Johnson's government was falling apart, but just before he resigned. Stephen, hi. Welcome to the show. Hi. Thanks for having me. So you recently wrote a piece about vice signaling for The Weekend magazine, which I loved. And I'm curious first... Like, what motivated you to write this piece? Like, how did you start to notice vice signaling as a term and a thing? So before I was at the FTI, I was solely covering UK politics. And I think the thing that I had started to notice is that there's always an element in democratic politics and there's sort of stuff you do and say that you don't actually intend to implement. And Mm. then there's the stuff that you try and implement. But the thing I had really started to notice about the difference between Boris Johnson's government and the two conservative governments which preceded it was that it has achieved essentially nothing in office. (laughs) There are a few things Boris Johnson has done in office. He led Britain out of the European Union. He made some choices about Ukraine that were positively received. But Stephen thinks that's about it. And this may sound familiar. According to Stephen, another classic version of vice signaling was Donald Trump's pledge to build a wall. During his presidential campaign, Trump said that he would erect a wall between the U.S. and Mexico to keep migrants out, and he would get Mexico to pay for it. That also didn't work. Uh, In the end, he erected something like 80 80 meters, if that, uh, of of new wall, right? Yeah, um, Yeah, Mexico did not pay for a single inch of Mm -hmm. that wall, but it was about signaling to a group of voters, look, I'm on your side, Um, I'm anti-immigration too. Both Trump's wall pledge and the Rwanda policy sound unusually cruel and very unrealistic. They both feed into people's fears around immigration, and neither of them have actually happened. But the problem with vice signaling is not just that it can be cruel. It's that ultimately, if you keep making promises and failing to deliver, your voters lose trust in the whole political system. Although uh, voters tell tell pollsters they like the Rwanda policy, they still say they don't trust the Conservatives to deal with with the problem as they see it of boat crossings. And by making a big song and dance of it, All it really does is it goes, we're not dealing with this problem. We're not dealing with this problem. Mm. Politics doesn't work. And that that hasn't really helped anyone. Part of politics is signaling to people that you're on side and you share their values. But Mm -hmm. the bit which really matters is then getting stuff done. Mm -hmm. 
And I do think in particular in a UK context, we have entered this sort of slightly weird performance art stage where <laughs> everything is done to signal positioning. And in the end, you go, wait, what have we done in office? Answer, not very much. Vice signaling isn't just happening in politics. I'm wondering if um, outside of politics, if there are places where you see vice signaling. Yeah, there. Are, I think you can think about any number of, um, you know, corporations which, you know, perhaps they market themselves as sort of, you know, kind of, well, we're really hard edge, we're tough, we don't, you know, we don't respect any of these sort of modern liberal fads. And then if you look at, say, the HR policies of the average right-wing media outlet, um, mm or somewhere which markets itself to, you know, socially conservative voters, then, oh, you're like, oh, this looks like a thoroughly modern corporation with the <laughs> right. same, same set of behaviours as everyone else. It's not like if you walked on around the set of Top Gun, you would be meeting a, a radically different set of people than you would on the, you know, the set of any other Hollywood blockbuster. So vice signalling and virtue signalling are opposites, but they're also sides of the same coin. They function in a very similar way. It seems like the thing that unites vice signaling and virtue signaling is that they're both kind of empty gestures. Yeah, and I think the other thing which unites them is as well as being them being empty gestures, then what the mistake I think lots of commentators have made with virtue signaling is to dis dismiss the underlying political demand that leads to it, right? They go, oh, this is just mm. virtue signaling. So, well, okay, yes, it may be virtue signaling when a big corporate company which has a terrible record on, you know, equal pay for women or medical benefits for same-sex couples puts a rainbow flag as its logo. But the political demand for equal pay and equality of, of medical and workplace benefits is a real and tangible demand. Take a recent controversy with the Disney Corporation. Earlier this year, Florida introduced legislation that opponents are calling the Don't Say Gay Bill. It's a law that tries to restrict talking about sexual orientation and gender identification in schools. And Disney, in an effort to placate everyone, totally botched its response. I put a good piece about this in the show notes. Can you um, describe for those who don't know what happened with Disney? Right, yeah. So so with, with, with Disney, uh, there is a... Uh, yeah, ironically, this, this story time will tell you both virtue and vice signaling, right? Which is that um, <laughs> in recent years, you know, the criticism many people in the West have is that Disney has been willing to kind of gently hint that some characters might be gay or have prominently diverse casting. But then when right. they are marketing those overseas, you know, scenes get go missing or... They're right in the corner, so there's a same-sex kiss in the... Yeah, blink in the and you'll miss it, same-sex kiss in one of the final scenes of The Rise of Skywalker, for example. You have black mm -hmm. characters who aren't on the, the magazine. And essentially, Disney has ended up in a situation where many of its workers and creatives go, you keep cutting our LGBT content, you're not a serious ally on the, this, and you're not being sufficiently vocal in opposing what the Florida government is doing in our own neighborhood, as it were, um, because that's mm -hmm. obviously where one of the parks is and, and various other bits of the Disney Corporation. And Disney has ended up in a situation where they have a large number of quite unhappy employees, but many Republicans in the state of Florida and elsewhere think that they are a socially liberal company and then won't get its beak out of politics. And I think, yeah, whether you think that characterization of Disney is fair or unfair, I think it is a good example of how if you signal something about yourself and you do not deliver it to the people you're signaling it to, they get cross, they make more demands of you, and you end up, instead of having the benefits of the signal, you just have a lot of people who don't trust you and a lot of, of very difficult to resolve dilemmas and conflicts. 
As of now, Disney has self-corrected by taking a stand. It's decided to keep the same-sex kiss in its new film, Lightyear. And in turn, it's been banned in 14 Middle Eastern countries, and it's unlikely to play in China. Do you think that virtue signaling is not as bad? Like, my sense is that, I mean, at least in virtue signaling, it's taking a stand for good. (laughs) Yeah, what's your thought on using virtue signaling and vice signaling, comparing them to each other? Um, well, so I guess I think they're they're equally bad. The problem with sort of the politics of signaling full stop is that it is making a promise that you either don't intend to keep or you're not willing to exert any actual energy to keep. And Mm -hmm. I think that is, that is, um, bad in of itself because it leads to both unreasonable um, expectations, delusionment with the political process, delusion with corporate processes. It's just bad because it increases the number of people who are anti-system. Um, mm-hmm. And as we've seen throughout the world, uh, the growing number of anti-system voters is deeply destabilizing and sometimes has really catastrophic consequences um, for the ability to achieve this stuff. I also think actually the the added thing about virtue signaling is it often becomes a substitute for arguing for virtue in of itself. Yeah. You know, to, to go back to the, the rainbow logo, it, it goes from, a well, look, we have this logo, and that's a substitute for arguing for, you know, the right to love, and indeed, not even just to love, to, you know, sleep with once and never call whoever you like. Um, <laughs> and it's actually really important that people argue for <laughs> virtues in of themselves and don't just yeah. signal to them. Yeah. You know, we spoke, Stephen, to the author Dan Brooks a few months ago. Um, He'd written this piece for FT Weekend about morality in the Twitter era. And it was about how it's like hard to live an entirely moral life. And we've gotten very good at giving moral instruction on Twitter for how not to be. But in turn, we've kind of forgotten how to be good people, that it's easier for us to point at what's wrong than to do what's right. And um, there seems to be something similar happening here. Yeah, and I think that is exactly right. And there's... um. There is something about social media that makes it a easier to say something is bad, and also yeah. makes it easier to to hold people to a standard we know that they can't ever meet. All social change does broadly start with people being able to. I was about to say admitting they're wrong. Actually, a lot of the time it in, involves allowing them to change their mind without ever ab- actually having to use the words "I was wrong" and just be mm. reintegrated into the new. <laughs> consensus because the the killer app of democracy is its ability to error correct right and if you make it really fraught for people to error correct really fraught for people to go i did that and i shouldn't have but a personal level that's not a nice way to live but a societal level i think it's only if you allow people to kind of make amends and not feel they're going to be kind of hauled over the coals well broadly you've got to be a tolerant society i agree um steven thank you so much this was fascinating thanks for having me That's the show this week. Thank you for listening to FT Weekend, the podcast from the Financial Times. Next week, we are looking at a new obesity drug coming to market and the questions it raises with global pharma correspondent Hannah Kuchler. And we're answering all the questions that you sent me on fashion, personal style, and how to build a wardrobe you don't have to think about with fashion editor Lauren Invick. Please keep in touch with us. We love hearing from you. You can email us at ftweekendpodcast at ft.com. 
On social media, the show is on Twitter at FT Weekend Pod, and I'm on Instagram and Twitter at Lila Rap. I am always asking questions and posting stuff that feeds into the show on my Instagram. Links to everything mentioned today are in the show notes, alongside a link to the best offers available on a subscription to the FT that includes 50% off a digital subscription, which is quite good, and a very good deal on FT Weekend in print. Those offers are at ft.com slash weekend podcast. Make sure to use that link. Another thing to let you know about, we are gearing up for the annual FT Weekend Festival in London, which is going to be on Saturday, September 3rd. As usual, it is at Kenwood House on Hampstead Heath. We have Nadia Hussein, the Great British Bake Off winner. We have novelist Ali Smith and Monica Ali. We have therapist and friend of the podcast, Esther Perel. I will be there interviewing Jamaica Kincaid, as will so many of my colleagues that have been on the show. You can buy a ticket at ft.com slash ftwf for FT Weekend Festival. I've got the details and a discount code in the show notes. I am Lila Raptopoulos, and here is my world-class team. Katya Kamkova is our senior producer. Lulu Smith is our assistant producer. Our sound engineers are Breen Turner and Sam Javinko, with original music by Metaphor Music. Neve Rowe is our intern. Zoe Sullivan is our contributing producer. Topher Forges is our executive producer, with Cheryl Brumley as our stand-in executive producer this week. And special thanks to Renee Kaplan. Have a wonderful weekend. And we'll find each other again next week. It's summer. And you know what that means. It's time for a Plymouth gin and tonic. So grab yourself a glass and some ice. Start with a pour of Plymouth gin, which is distilled using a blend of seven botanicals. Add in some tonic, then finish with a slice of orange. Now that is the perfect gin and tonic. Plymouth Gin, distilled with care and craft in England since 1793. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mm.